There is only one who is permitted to judge. There is only one who has righteousness within himself. There is only one who is fully holy and in control of all things. He is the one who appoints leaders and nations. He is the one who establishes governments and peoples and tribes and lands and languages. He alone is the one who is the judge of all things. And guess what? He cares more about justice than any of us do. Our culture is so focused on the precept, on the law of justice. And God alone is the judge. And God alone will judge, and he will judge all of the earth because he is good. an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. God, please open your word to us today that we might learn from you, that we might learn from your Holy Spirit what is good and what is righteous and what is holy and what is to be pursued in our mind and in our heart. And Lord, also, conversely so, what is to be turned away from because we want to pursue you. What is to be left to the world and for us to set our mind and our heart away from the things of this world because of you. Because in turning to you in faith, this is our whole life now. This, you, our whole life now, the kingdom of God, our whole lives now. That when I turn away from this earth, that I am to have no more of the things of this world, of the ways of this world, of the practices of this world. Because you are a holy God. And because your holiness demands us to be holy. It commands us and it demands us be holy. 
as you are holy. So scripture says, we ought to be holy in all we do. Oh Lord, illuminate these truths to us today. That we might once again be transformed by the power of the word of God. By the power which comes from you. That we would not lean on our own understanding or our own strength, but we would seek you for all these things and that we might be transformed by your power, O God. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Folks, please open your Bibles with me to Genesis 18. Last week, we spoke about Genesis 18, verses 16 through 21, which is God speaking with Abraham, not withholding from Abraham what he is about to do with these two angels from heaven. As they came to earth in the appearance of what scripture describes here in Genesis as three men. But we know one is the Lord, as scripture is very clear in saying, the Lord said, the Lord said. And then we pick it up now in verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom, Fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. That alone is amazing, folks, that the Lord God listened to Abraham and agreed upon a concession with that contingency. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Verse 27, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I, who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. The Lord, continuing to listen with Abraham, to Abraham, and in conversation with Abraham. Verse 30, then he said, O Lord, not, let, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. 
Then Abraham said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. The Lord answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is a powerful and wondrous passage of Scripture. I would probably say that of every passage of Scripture, but this is a particular curiosity in wonder that Abraham comes before the Lord. What did we read last time? We read that Abraham pleaded with the Lord to not pass him by that he wanted to have conversation with the Lord. He wanted to have communion with the Lord. He wanted to spend time together to speak and to enjoy the presence of his God together. He said, oh Lord, if I've found favor, do not pass by who your servant. Abraham vividly knows here in Genesis 18, his position before the Lord. You see his language in this. You see his language in this conversation. You see his boldness before the Lord. And that can only come from a very personal relationship with the Lord. To approach the Lord in this manner after God already said that he was going to destroy these cities. Abraham still stood before the Lord. He wanted to be with the Lord. And he wanted to bring this matter before the Lord. And look at the language. Look at the language Abraham uses here. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham sees. The difference. There is reward for those who are faithful to God, and there is punishment for those who are wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Abraham understands this. Abraham knows this. Abraham knows this is a good thing. Because wickedness must be punished. Because if there is to be justice, wickedness must be punished. Look at the language here. Behold, if I have, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes, verse 27. Abraham is confident before the Lord, and Abraham knows who he is before the Lord. Let us never be comfortable in our relationship with the Lord and forget who we are and who God is. God is God Almighty. God is God in power and strength, in sovereignty, in justice, in holiness. He is God alone. There is none other. He is God alone. 
And God is the God of justice and God is the God of judgment and God is the God of defining what is good and what is evil. God is the God to set the boundaries between good and evil. And it's really you're seeking God and you're living your life in a lifestyle that glorifies God or you're not. So it's not so much a defining boundary between the two. There are only two ways. And you're either of one or you're of the other. And God says, this is the way that is good. This is the way that is right. This is the way of holiness. And this is what glorifies me. And God sets it forth not with a guideline. God sets it forth not just in a word of recommendation. How does the Bible describe the language that God has for the lifestyles of men? Commandments. We spoke before that Abraham is to command his family to keep the law of the Lord. Because it is not a suggestion. It is not a perhaps you will do this or you can do this. It is a follow me, obey my commandments, and you will be favored. You will get to enjoy the presence of a relationship with the God of all things who loves you more than anyone else. Who knows you completely. I think one of the greatest longings of the human heart is to be known. We want someone to know us. We have this innate desire. This is what makes humanity so different. We are very different from all other creatures in so many ways, but this particularly is very special and unique to humanity. We want to be known. We are relational. We are made in the image of God, and God is relational. And we are to glorify God. We want to be known. And guess what? God knows you completely. And he loves you more than you could ever be loved by anyone else. Four things we see in today's text. And I'm sure there are many more. But four things I see in today's text. Number one. As God confided in Abraham in last week's text, just the previous five verses or so, because of their personal relationship. Verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Verse 19, for I have chosen him. God is a God who chooses that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what? Righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And now we see Abraham's bold and persistent petition before the Lord, even while God had already told Abraham what he was about to do because of the personal relationship. Last week, we saw God saying, shall I hide from Abraham? He confides in Abraham. He comes to Abraham. He speaks it to Abraham. 
perhaps so that he could have today's text conversation with Abraham and prompt this in Abraham's heart. But still, he came to Abraham, and now Abraham approaches the Lord, initiates with the Lord in conversation in today's text because of the personal relationship. Number two, Abraham continues to petition the Lord. And as he does, Abraham makes the distinction that the wicked are due judgment, but that the righteous conversely should be spared of God's judgment. We don't see this too often in today's world. When there is a great catastrophe, is what the world would say. But sometimes I think it is because of the Lord's judgment that certain, quote-unquote, catastrophes or, or great number of deaths, events in this world come to pass during our lifetime. It's because that is part of God's judgment against wickedness. And not always would I think that God spares the righteous out of that catastrophic event. Because God is God, and the events that transpire in this world are curious to some of us as Christians, but because God is in control of all things. And for the Christian, for the believer, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear physical death on this earth because when we die on earth, we get what we've been longing for in our heart to the fullest. We get to experience God fully. We know in part, but in heaven, in the kingdom of God, we will be with God face to face, and we will get to experience him fully. No more restraint. That is a reward. We do not need to fear death. But all to say that in this world, I see certain events, and I'm not saying I know any one particular event, but I believe that God does sometimes, at times, carry out his judgment against wickedness. And I'm sure some Christians die as a result of that as well. But here, curiously, Abraham approaches the Lord and says, would you destroy the righteous along with the wicked? And in that, he is saying, I understand that you are calling men to righteousness, to righteous living, to faithfulness with you. And that those who turn their back on you reap your judgment, are due judgment. They deserve judgment because they have turned their back on you, because they have not chosen you, because they've chosen the things of this world which are worthless. And not only that, but they are embracing Satan in that. And Satan is absolutely opposed to God. So in that, they are absolutely opposed to God. Number three, Abraham's boldness, I think, was motivated by a few heart motives. 
First, his nephew Lot, of course, was living in Sodom. Lot's wife, Lot's daughters, and his daughter's husbands, we know. And we'll read that in Genesis 19 when we get there. Second, he was asking God to spare absolute destruction to any other believers in the cities in addition to Lot's family. And that, at the end of verse 32, Abraham and God had come to an agreement on the matter that if there were just ten or more righteous total, that the absolute destruction that God had said he would bring on them would then not fall on the city. So this would allow the inhabitants to live. Perhaps Abraham's motivation in that was for them to have more time to repent to God. That Abraham had compassion for humanity in general, even though they had turned their back on God to this point. And also as part of that, I think Abraham had in his heart a longing for the people of those two cities to have faith in God. He figured surely there might be 50 people faithful to the Lord. And then Abraham maybe doubted that that there would be that many, so he kept lowering it down, down, down. But I think he felt confident there were at least 10 because after verse 32, it says Abraham returned to his place. Let me read verse 32 because he says, O Lord, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. He says in his final comment, but this once. So last time, suppose 10 are found there. And God, out of great compassion and because of the personal relationship with Abraham, and I think because of his heart's motivations, God said, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, continued on his path. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And I think part of what Abraham held on to in all of this discourse was that even as he walked away from the Lord, he did so in faith that God would do what was good, what was right, what was just. And Abraham was approaching God because he knows God is merciful. Because he knows that he saved him. Abraham knows that God pulled him out of Ur of the Chaldeans of a pagan land and a pagan people with pagan practices. He knew he was merciful. He knew that for Abram and Sarai become Abraham and Sarah, that there would be a child of the promise. That yes, it was a long stretch of time in human years, but the God said, you will be the father of many descendants and kings of peoples will come from you and from Sarah. He knew, he knew God was merciful. So I think that was part of his heart's motivation in approaching the Lord in this. 
And because they were close, he knew he could approach the subject with God in this and ask from the Lord in this. And it evidences his love for God in this. Because out of the love relationship that we have with God, that God has with us, we can be open and honest before the Lord. And God wants our heart's motivations to be motivated by the things that motivates his heart. And the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. That all should repent and trust in God and bow the knee before God because God is the king over all things. He is the Lord over all things. And that those who recognize that God is the God of all things and that God is the only one who is worthy of all the glory, then God smiles and God affirms that faith. And he says, follow me. I will be your God. You will be my people. Follow me. The fourth thing I see here, God's judgment. When it occurs during what we call today the age of grace, as shown in chapter 19, which we'll get to starting next week, or when it will be for all people at the end of time, God's judgment will be swift and it will be absolute. And it is because God is just that he renders judgment. It would not be just, it would not be justice if God did not render judgment. And men will be judged for who they put their faith in in their life, whether that is for God and their, and their judgment will be stayed or for anyone else because if you do not put your faith in God, you are putting your faith at the very least in yourself. And we long for justice. We want evil to be punished. We long for that which has been taken away from us to be restored to us. We want everything to be made right, and so does God. The reason that we have that longing in our heart, it's good because God put it there. It's an echo of his heart. God wants things to be restored. God wants to make all things new. And guess what? He will. He's going to do that. That's our hope. That's our faith. God is going to do it. He will make all things new. He will do it because he is both merciful and because he is just. And that is why God will bring judgment because he is just. You see, there is no holiness if there is no separation from wickedness. Wickedness is the embracing of evil. It's the pursuing of evil. It's the going after of evil. This is what is in your heart. This is what you've filled your life up with. This is 
the motivation of your heart. And if the motivation of your heart is wickedness, if the motivation of your heart is evil, then you have become wicked. You have become evil. It is the embracing of that which Satan values, not of what God values. And because Satan is absolutely opposed to God, and he is the embodiment and the proponent and the promulgator of evil, there is no justice if wickedness is not punished. And Satan will be punished. And those who follow after Satan will be punished. We want those who are bent on murder to be punished. We want those who promote and facilitate false religions and false ideas and propaganda to be judged. We want those who kill and maim and injure and destroy to be punished. And guess what? Today, October 15th, is not the end of the story. God knows the end of the story, and all mankind who has not bowed their knee voluntarily in this life to Jesus Christ as their personal Savior will face God's utter and terrifying judgment. If you have heard a version of Christianity that doesn't have to do with God's judgment, if you have heard some false religion promote an idea about God or Jesus that does not involve hell, that hell is not in the Bible, that hell is not a reality for those who oppose God, then you have not heard the word of God. And you have been lied to by someone. Because the truth is that there is an utter and terrifying judgment coming for all people who have not bowed their knee to Jesus Christ. And those people will get what they have sought in their life in seeking to being apart from God. They will get an existence forever apart from God. But they have no idea. First of all, I, I think most of them don't even believe that there is a life after death. And for those who do, my great fear and my presumption is that they believe it's going to be some kind of neutral existence, or they think that they're still going to go to some form of heaven. But they have no idea that it will not be a neutral existence where they can do as they please. Like the worst version of prison that they could ever conceive of, but it will be worse than that. The Bible uses the language of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like nails on a chalkboard. Pain and torment forever. That's what hell will be. For those who do not bow the knee to God Almighty. 
who do not receive Jesus Christ, his son, and the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on our behalf for our sin. Folks, we're in the age of grace. God has given us all a life on earth and to listen to his word, to bow the knee to Jesus Christ, or for those who do not, to choose to turn their back on him and live for themselves. And that means putting themselves on the throne and acting in a way as if they thought themselves to be their God. But before there is judgment at the end of this life, there is still time to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. And none of us know how many more days on earth that we have to live. And at the end of this life, when you die, when I die, eternal life begins in one place or another, depending on who we have put our faith in. I think we underestimate our sin. We placate our sin. Even Christians, I think, do not understand the depth and the absolute rebellion that sin is before our holy God. One sin means that you are on a trajectory to hell after you die on this earth. Do most people know that? If we told them, would most people care? They might, if they knew that hell is a place of unending torment and evil, darkness. If they thought the strife and division and slander and lies and anger in this world was something, they really have no idea what waits for them after this life in hell. Only one sin. Sin is not to be trifled with. Sin is not to be thought lightly of or lightly about. And I've been guilty of this as well. I think all of us have, or we would not sin whatsoever. We're still battling our, the, the rebellion in our hearts for holiness in God. We read God's word, we see the magnificence of God, we see the call of God to be called out and to be set apart and to live a life dedicated unto holiness and righteousness because of God. And yet, we're still struggling with the rebellion. When you sin, you are choosing the way of the devil instead of the way of Jesus. This should compel us into the arms of Jesus, striving for his comfort rather than the supposed comfort of sin, longing for his embrace rather than the rumored satisfaction promised to us by sin, realizing that sin is what drove Jesus to the cross and hammered steel nails into his hands as he screamed out, 
on the cross. It's sin, our sin, that put Christ there. And the judgment that awaits people in hell is righteous judgment. Because the all-powerful God is holy, and therefore those who mock him to his face or live their lives in a way as to attack a holy God must be punished and punished severely because God is holy. But Jesus made a way. The life of Christ and his death on the cross satisfied the penalty against us, which was owed to the Father. That any who would believe in Jesus and trust in Jesus with their lives and live in glory to Jesus would be spared God's wrathful judgment and receive that which they long for in this life. See, those who long for God, they get what they want too. They get to be with God and to be with him forever. And the heaven that awaits for all those who bowed the knee to Jesus Christ as Savior is all the joy, all the happiness, and all the holy pleasure that you have ever longed for in this life. And guess what? It will be even better than you or I can imagine. Because the all-powerful God in his holiness wants to share himself with those who are dedicated to him. So with this mindset, may we, like Abraham, have an undying compassion for others that they would know the penalty for just one sin. And we all have many. But just one in your life is what indebted you to God with a debt that you could never pay because you're not holy. Because you could never make a sacrifice that was good enough for God the Father. May we have an undying compassion that they would know about Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his offer for them to turn from their sin in repentance and trust in him and to be spared from God's wrath. Let us not have a mediocre compassion for the lost folks, but a great undying compassion. A compassion which drives us and stirs us and keeps us awake at night and, and is on our thoughts during the day, longing and praying, calling them on the phone, meeting in person, speaking the name and the love of Jesus over and over and over again that they might repent and believe. Reverend Charles Spurgeon said it well when he said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. 
Because, folks, the people of this world do not know what their decisions now mean for them in eternity. We are in the age of grace, and God is very patient. But because God is just, because God is holy, his patience has a limit until justice needs to be rendered. And God will bring a fiery judgment upon all people who are not covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. Lastly, let us realize the great gravity of all this and be thankful to our God. Don't be disillusioned into the fact that you've known Bible truths for so long that you have known the truth about Jesus, that you have known about his death and resurrection, and then become complacent in it. Be alive in it. Realize that the truth of what Jesus has done for you impacts your life every single day. Thank God for his death and resurrection every day. Because it is his death and resurrection which gives you life today. And gives you life tonight. And gives you life tomorrow. And gives you life the next day. And gives you life into eternity. And to be with God. This is the hope of the gospel. And this is the hope of our hearts. And his death is what was required. For you to have life. And this is what was required for you to have eternal life and be with God forever. Let's pray. The God who knows men's hearts and the God who knew that we were weak and we were sinners before you chose us before you came to us and spoke to us and called us out from this world. May we, your children, never, ever, ever forget what you have done for us. And that the restorative and life-giving work of Jesus' death and resurrection impacts us every single day and every single second of every day and into eternity. There was an about face because of the power of God in our lives at that moment that changed us for all eternity. In time and outside of time, God, you have done the work and you are worthy of the glory and you are worthy of all praise and honor and all of our lives and all of our thanks. Now may we join you in the mission. If we have grown weary, give us restorative life in the mission that we are to share your gospel with this world and to pray for those who are on a trajectory towards death without you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Join me next time as we continue in Genesis 19.